0: Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast, I'm your host, Sean Johnson. How do you scale something 10x and then go back and scale it 10x again? It turns out the answer is surprisingly simple, at least in one case, and yet very few organizations have the discipline to do it. My guest today is Elon Mossbacher, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Operations at SpotHero. And in this conversation, we talk about how Elon and his team went about growing SpotHero into the largest mobile parking platform in the country. Elon has a ton of experience around building marketplace businesses, pursuing strategic partnerships, and a lot more. He's also super thoughtful about the future of mobility in general, and we got into a pretty fascinating conversation around autonomous vehicles, scooters, and where he thinks things are headed. I always enjoy my conversations with Elon, and I hope you find this as interesting as I did. So, uh, Elon, thanks for being here. Why don't we start with, I know you do a couple of different things at Spot Hero. How How do you sort of describe... What you do today to folks, if they ask you.
1: Yeah, so I think it depends a little bit on the audience, right? Uh, if I meet someone that's anywhere from I park cars for a living, right, that's 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 sometimes a fun one, they like, what? To, you know, I work at a mobility technology company at Spot Hero, right? And if I get specific into what I do at Spot Hero, we often say at Spot Hero that we're, we feel like we're a new company every 30 days, and I feel like my job changes about every 30 days. Uh, but right now, what I'm focused on is a few different areas of the business. I started off for several years in Spot Hero, uh, leading the marketing organization. And currently, my responsibilities span across marketing, business development, uh, new product innovation uh, around some products that we've incubated internally, as well as some products that we've acquired.
0: I remember when you first joined and you and I were talking about kind of what your what your goals were there. And, and at the time, you were primarily kind of in a marketing capacity, but I remember you telling me you were, you know, you were meeting with the board and, and sort of the explicit mandate was to t- help them 10x things. And then you did that and you got a pat or, you know, not just you, but I mean, your team did that and you got a pat on the back. And then they said, all right, now we need to do it again. And you were talking about like the, the ways in which you kind of did it the first time were very different from the ways that you did it the second time. And, you know, from a mindset perspective and a strategy perspective and all that kind of stuff. Just for folks that have never kind of been on that ride before, kind of walk me through what that was like and what were some of the lessons maybe that you learned trying to kind of scale something that quickly.
1: In kind of startup land, the mandate's always, right, you have to like 10x, that's like the default, right, table stakes, I should say. But it's early on, you know, one of the things was what, that we did really well that we learned was figure out who your best customer is. In our space, there's probably been like 200 different competitors who who tried to start something. But I think one of the things that we did really well was very early on ask who's our best customer and then align all of our initiatives around, around acquiring that best customer and building product for that best customer uh, and making the experience as good as possible. And then as we fast forward you know, several years later, what we see is those customers are still buying and that's really what's what's made our business really big. Uh, as opposed to others in the space who, who didn't focus on the best customer, maybe today are acquiring roughly the same number of customers every month but don't have three, four, five, six, seven years of people who joined our app who are still who are still buying. So that was one lesson early on. Um, I think as we grew, another big lesson is just about scaling yourself and scaling your team, right? So as, as a leader of a startup, you have to scale as fast, if not faster than than your company and it's hard to do that when all you're doing is working on your company Uh, you also have to work on yourself so for some people that might be um, a part-time MBA for others it might be an executive coach for others it might be reading or podcasts or mentors or board members but it's really really important to invest in yourself and making sure that you're at least one step ahead of, of where your company needs to be
0: what did that look like for you? I mean, how did you identify first of all the areas and where you, where you needed to grow? And then secondly, you know, what were some of the things that that worked for you in terms of doing that?
1: Yeah. So I think, uh, probably all of the above (laughs) I had started an MBA part time just before joining spot here. So I focused a lot of that time on like, how do I apply this class or this thing that I'm learning to a job here? So everything from how do we figure out who our best customers are to how do we lay out a business plan to uh, how do we choose to manage our team and recruit and hire i read a lot um busy life so i'll go like a month or two or three without reading but then i'll read like three four or five books in a weekend and then you know spot here's had the very good fortune of assembling a, a pretty remarkable board and so just having the opportunity to learn from board members and during board meetings and from other mentors has been really really instrumental but you have to you have to find whatever works for you, uh, and you have to find a way to learn outside of just doing your day to day job
0: going back to the finding your best customers thing, it seems like that's a pretty common problem for startups in the sense that they you know they take in some money, they have this sort of mandate to grow really quickly they end up putting a lot of that money into Probably, you know, often it's like paid acquisition or whatever. And it, it either it takes them a little while to kind of figure out that those users aren't sticking around or they don't have, they're not measuring the right things. And so they're mistaking top line growth for kind of product market fit. And then, you know, it gets to a point where it sort of tips over and they realize, oops, we we aren't keeping these people and we don't know how, we don't even know who our best customers necessarily are. How, how did you figure out who those best customers were and how did you, did that happen quickly for you or... You know, were you were you already sort of at product market fit or was that something that you had to kind of stumble your way towards?
1: We actually have a really interesting case study there because we, you know, we've been doing this for a while now. And along the way, we acquired one of our competitors who uh, is not part of our Spy Hero family, but had a very different approach. And so it's actually pretty interesting for us to look back at kind of how do we do things and how did they do things and what were some of the differences. But the way the way we really approached it is is by the time I joined Spire Hero, we had you know, a product that people use, drivers use to define parking. And so we had like decent product market fit, but I asked Mark, our founder and CEO, kind of when I started like, hey, who's our best customer? And actually I asked everyone on the team kind of who do you think our best customer is? And no one really had a good answer. And so we went through a process of looking to see who are the best customers, like who's bought the most times and actually interviewing them. And, and kind of learning from there. And then from there, we, you know, we built a survey, uh, we sent out the survey, we did some statistical analysis and what we found is a certain segment of customers who use us for a specific reason, uh, were like 13 X, uh, more profitable than anyone else. And in fact, they were the only profitable segment at the time. And so from there, what we started to do is we built, uh, the inventory or product that we, that, that we sold around the needs of that customer. We built kind of the marketing channels that we chose around that best customer. Our sales and customer service really focused around that best customer. And what that allowed us to do is not necessarily acquire more customers, but it allowed us to acquire better customers who, you know, a year or two or three or four, even five later, are still buying from us. And referred to a case study earlier, right? One of the things that enabled us to do that is we were. We had enough capital to, to really focus there. But uh, one of our, our competitors we acquired last year, Parking Panda, was a bit more capital constrained. And so their approach, rather than getting the best customer who would buy forever, which sometimes was more expensive to acquire, their approach was how do we find customers who are profitable on the first transaction? They actually did a really, really good job of building out product and inventory and kind of a whole, whole company around... Acquiring a customer who is profitable in the first transaction, but maybe only buys once when we both started these strategies at the time We were roughly the same size, but fast forward a few years by became much much bigger and because of that repeat customer But by coming together now we kind of have the best of both worlds, right? We have the customers who are really, really sticky. Now. We also have this really great channel of customers who kind of Maybe only buy once but they're profitable in the first transaction So kind of having two different strategies worked out well for both of us in the long run
0: and from a marketing perspective, are you targeting those people in different ways with sort of different messages, or are you uh, using the same kind of messaging and you just realize that some of those people are gonna look like this and some of these people are gonna look like this?
1: So the tricky thing there is, is that the highest volume, kind of bottom of the funnel channels that like most startups use, like you know, search, actually acquire the worst customers, right? The the trickiest channels, uh, the most expensive channels, the riskiest channels are the ones that acquire the best customers, and so that was that was kind of like a challenge for us where we had to really figure out what to do. Uh, but by having that insight of this is the best customer, we had the conviction then to spend on offline, more expensive, harder to measure type channels uh, earlier on uh, because we knew that's where we had to go to find the best customer. Uh, yeah, we still do a ton of SEO. We still do a ton of paid search, and and those types of things. But those customers for our business tend to bring in and folks who don't repeat as often.
0: So when you find something out like that, and you're bringing that to your board, for example, and I would imagine that some things like you know your 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 TAM or whatever might look different, or some of the models that they might have been using and their projections might have been different, and you're saying, hey, um, we actually think our most profitable customers are this kind of sliver of the market. And acquiring them is going to be a lot more expensive. Aside from just sort of having great board members who are on board or a great team that sort of buys into it, I mean, are there strategies that you that you had to leverage to kind of paint that story in a compelling way and to kind of maximize the likelihood that you were you were able to kind of win the support to kind of make that decision? Because it sounds like that was a big turning point for the company, I would think, right?
1: I think there's kind of been two periods of time where we went through that. One was kind of on the advertising side, or like how do we invest in these more expensive channels? And then the other was on the product side. We actually developed a product called Your for Business, which really honed in on like a customized version of, of our product for, for a really strong audience and really strong customer segment. And both those cases, we had that conversation. On the advertising side, it's pretty simple. I think what we've learned is there's kind of a simple formula of stacked rank ROI right by channel. So it's basically what's the lifetime value What's the customer acquisition cost? What's the payback by channel? And look at that in the stacked range. Say where where are we can get the most efficiency. So where's the LTV to CAC ratio best? And where where are we can get the most volume? If we realize that the highest LTV customers are going to come from slightly more expensive channels, that's fine as long as the cohort ROI is there. So there's a, there's, a, there's a pretty proven framework to at least have that discussion. So that's kind of one piece. The other piece that we did is uh, on the advertising side is we basically had, say, a set amount of our budget. Say, like, 80% of our budget might be different for different companies. That was kind of set for proven channels. And uh, when we talked about our CAC, we really included that those dollars. And then we had, you know depending on the time, uh, an evolution business, say, 10 20% of our business, that was really, like, test. We would just try new things. And some of those would be expensive and some of those would not be that measurable. And some of those would be kind of crazy. But we would we kind of use that money not counting against ourselves because we knew at any moment we could shut that off and not do that anymore. Uh, but that's kind of the way like we budgeted, at least uh for, for those types of initiatives. And then and then on the product side, when we said you know we want to make a major investment to improve the product for, for our best customer. Uh, I mean, the feedback from the board was like, uh, "Hey, why didn't you do this six months ago?" So that, that 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 was a pretty easy sell. But I think the main lesson there, in terms of incubating a startup within a startup, or balancing the core business uh, or kind of the the, the way you you make money with something with something smaller and newer, I think the best advice we got there, and and the thing that we really learned there, was having a separate P so really operating as two different entities. So your, your core business or the thing that's really big has a P&L with this is your revenue. These are your expenses. These are the people dedicated to this project. Uh, and then the small project have to, has to have its own uh, with its own expectations around revenue growth and with its own dedicated team. Because if you are always looking at the trade off between a really big thing and a small thing, the ROI and the big thing in the short run is always going to be better than the ROI and the small thing or the new thing uh, in the short run. And so like bifurcating those two projects and not looking at them as trade-offs, but looking at them as like two things that are happening in parallel was definitely a big lesson. And the thing that we've done is help us set ourselves up for success when, when trying new things.
0: Yeah, that's something enterprise companies I know run into all the time in terms of how do they invest in, in emerging stuff while at the same time kind of doing the core. They very often are trying to use the same kinds of evaluation criteria for success for both. And that's, you know, obviously, that, to your point, the new thing looks horrible by, by, those, by those kinds of metrics. You've talked before about the need to kind of avoid copying kind of what other people do. So especially in, in the marketing community or like in the, the growth hacky community, there's a lot of content out there around tactics and do this specific thing and, you know, X, Y, and Z will happen. And I know you're not, you feel like that's probably some misguided, a misguided approach. Talk, talk a little bit about that. I
1: would say like the main thought there is like, start with why, right? It's perfectly acceptable. And in fact, expected to learn from others and look at analogs and look at who's done it before and figure out, Hey, what have they done that could work for us? The the mistake that companies make is is copying tactics without really really thinking about the strategy behind it um so for example you know we often look at analogs of companies that are in mobility or that are further along in their journey and look at some of the tactics and try to evaluate like does this tactic fit within our strategy or not uh, and that's and that's okay but oftentimes i've seen companies whose strategies like just copy the competitor and if if you're not in a leadership position, uh, and you're trying to catch up, just copying what the leader does isn't going to help you very much. One kind of example that that I recall over the years is at one point, you know, we're targeting drivers. So at one point, we had uh, hired some folks to to stand at the exit to one of the highways in Chicago coming into the city with like a big sign called sign flippers and just say like, you spot here, right? With a promo code. And a few days later, uh, one of my friends who led marketing for a different startup that was focused on a totally different vertical was like, hey, my CEO just called me and he, he, he was asking why we don't do sign flippers, too. <laughs> right. So it's like, well, we're, we're targeting drivers, right? Like they're they're a few minutes away from parking and we want to remind them. And this is a great tactic given given our, our, our audience and our strategy. But like you're <laughs> that's not your target audience and it doesn't align with your brand. And and, and so why would you copy that? So there's there's definitely this assumption Whereas, like, if it's working for someone else, it should work for us too. You know, one other example that we felt in like, you know, 2015, 2016, um, there was all these like on-demand apps for everything. On-demand, like, in our space, there was like on-demand valets, but there was like on-demand for food, and all these apps popping up, uh, and they're all just spending a ridiculous amount of money on Facebook app installs, and the cost of a Facebook app install is crazy, and so. You know, we had all sorts of people saying, hey, everyone else is doing Facebook app installs, you should too. And we kept trying it and it kept not working. And, and at a certain point, we just stopped. Um, and fast forward a year, two or three, and a lot of those companies are, are, are out of business. And so just really understanding what you're trying to achieve, what the strategy is, and then aligning the tactics to, to what you're trying to do is important. Differentiate between learning from others and copying others. Um, and really understanding the why is very, very critical.
0: Yeah. And it seems like um, having an open mind about not just of, um, Hey, I saw this channel works and so we want to use it, but also sort of checking your assumptions at the door, like, and you're talking about like outdoor or obviously like the sign flippers or whatever, not assuming that those are bad channels and kind of dismissing them out of hand, but kind of having an open mind about them would also be pretty important.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's have a, have a level of curiosity and desire to learn and, and open mindedness, but don't, don't assume that anyone else knows what they're doing. Right. And don't. Don't assume that someone else's tactic is, is the right tactic for you. And it's it's great to learn and, and kind of merge those ideas into your own business. But I think sometimes people assume too often that others know what they're doing when they're not. And others assume that just copying the tactic will work for them when their strategy is totally different.
0: For folks that are, you know, that when they do have a mandate to scale really aggressively, it, it does seem like one of the, at least the perceived advantages of Facebook, Google, et cetera, is how quickly you can theoretically scale before you kind of saturate a channel. And at a minimum, it seems like some of the, these other channels, it's more difficult, I would imagine, to scale those. How does that fit into the mandate to kind of to 10x something? Are those channels able to get you all the way there? Or are you having to, do you still have to kind of supplement with some of the more common channels to try to kind of make up the deficit that, um, or, or, or sort of hit your growth objectives?
1: I think it depends on like what kind of business you run, right? There's there's really successful businesses that spend almost nothing on marketing and grow through their product and grow via word of mouth, and and there's other businesses that rely entirely on one channel, right? So so it depends, you know. One of one of my colleagues here a few years back, when we were kind of in this crazy growth phase, we were trying to decide like should we spend this money or not on this test. He's like, look, uh, if we don't spend, we lose. If we do spend we might lose right so like when you when you really distill it down you're like if our mission is grow really fast and we sit on our hands then we're not going to grow really fast so that's that's kind of how i think about it in terms of channel it really depends on your business what you see in most businesses uh, certainly marketplace businesses is there's like one or two primary channels and maybe that's google or facebook right and that's why those companies are so valuable and so big because lots of people spend money there but other companies that have different channels, right? And you've you've you're familiar with with all the various growth hacking legends and, and all the stories there of companies who've done refer a friend or conversion rate optimization or various other hacks. So so those can work really well. But usually there's not like one silver bullet, usually it's like one or two or three primary channels and then a whole bunch of other tests and optimizations and, and things that work for a day, a week, a month, a year and then and then kinda of go away. Um, and our business is a little different, too, because we're a marketplace business, and we're also based around geographies. And so on the marketplace side, sometimes your advertising to acquire consumers is less so focused on the on on the volume of consumers and the profitability of those consumers, but it's actually about filling the the merchant or the supply side of the business. And so kind of the more customers you get, the more inventory you can get. So sometimes there's that dynamic. And then sometimes if you're starting a new vertical or a new geography for your marketplace business, again, you kind of want to seed that market and and acquire a bunch of customers unprofitably initially to grow. So, like, if you recall, like, when Lyft and Uber started a new city, they'd, like, pay drivers, like, a a minimum amount uh, until they got enough demand that they didn't have to do that anymore. Um, So there's all sorts of tactics like that as well.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about marketplaces. I know that's a particularly... Um, kind of challenging model for a lot of people, you know, you talk about the chicken and egg problem and all that kind of stuff. I mean, what, what are some of the other lessons that you've learned trying to kind of build out two sides of a marketplace, you know, kind of at the same time, if you were to do it from scratch again, what, what lessons would you sort of take with you?
1: Sure. Well, the first thing I'd say is, is for anyone who's, who's considering building a marketplace business, there's maybe like 10 years ago, there wasn't a ton of information about this. And there was like chicken or egg was like the big question, but now this like it's pretty well documented right there's um, a handful of, of really good articles about marketplace businesses one of our investors inside venture partners has this document called the periodic table of marketplace businesses which talks about not only all of the metrics uh, that you have to look at but kind of what's low medium and high for different types of metrics um and there's, a, there's a ton of really good content out there that can be read but i think for us one of the biggest takeaways and pieces of advice that we got and things that served us really well was focusing on liquidity over geography, meaning start with one geography or one vertical before you try to be in all of them. I like to like use Facebook as an analogy for this, but like Facebook started at like Harvard and then once it's saturated there, Ivy League schools and then like East coast schools and then all colleges and then high school and then kind of, Adults who are beyond beyond kind of at that point in their life and then businesses, right? Whereas some of the Facebook competitors at the time were like open to everyone From day one and so in our business that meant uh, We focused on Chicago and we were only in Chicago for several years And in fact our business was bigger in Chicago than any any competitor uh, Who was national and then we only really expanded beyond Chicago once we got the playbook down and as a result we were able to move much, much, much faster when we when we launched in new new markets. Um, and it's very, very easy to just spread yourself too thin if you kind of try to do everything all at once at the beginning. So that was probably the biggest lesson learned. Um, going back to your question about chicken or egg, I think in most businesses these days, it's it's the uh, supply side, the merchant, it's the one who's more patient because a merchant or someone selling something understands the concept of I'm going to list this and it may take a while for me to make money. Uh, whereas a consumer they so go to your site once, and you don't have what what they want. They're gonna they're gonna leave pretty quickly, and I think that's that's pretty well documented and proven at this point.
0: One of the channels I know that you you that maybe is a little less common for startups, definitely when they're kind of on the smaller side, and maybe becomes more prevalent kind of once you've earned the right is uh, is partnerships. And I know you've been pretty aggressive about pursuing those. How do you think through which types of partnerships kind of make sense? I know in your in your case, there's there's a fair amount of work involved you know, from a tech stack perspective in terms of integrating with these different partners and that kind of stuff. I mean, you probably can't pursue all of them. So what's your decision-making criteria that you use when you're trying to kind of evaluate what makes a good partnership versus a bad partnership? And then maybe you guys are probably big enough now that people are coming to you, but when you're on the other side of it where you're trying to pursue the partnership, any any strategies or things that you kind of learned from that standpoint?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in the last decade or so doing this have often started in kind of like a first marketer and various startups type role and then inevitably after you know two three years you get to this point where you're like okay i've got facebook i've got google i've got the other channels what's next and it always ends up being partnerships right like so there's this like natural evolution of, of partnerships being a way to a way to grow the business so that's that's thought one thought two is uh, you know, I mentioned earlier the importance of kind of mentors and, and finding ways to learn outside of outside of like the day to day. So, def- when it comes to partnerships, one mentor of mine who spent a lot of time doing business development recommended a book called *The Sumo Advantage*. Um, really, really good book, and basically outlines the business development process for startups. So, anyone listening should definitely read *The Sumo Advantage*. There's a few ways i think about this and then there's generally a process so the way i tend to think about this is number one the difference between sales and partner and and business development or partnerships is as follows with sales you generally go to someone and say uh, i'll give you this and you write me a check with business development or partnership it's partnerships is generally we'll do this thing together to serve our, our mutual audience and so the first thing i like to think through is um who are the customers that were whose lives we're both trying to improve uh, with different solutions? And is there is there a way that if we bring our both solutions together, we'll make the lives of our customers easier? So that's, that's number one. Number two is, you know, Sean, you asked the question about, uh, you know, if you're really big, maybe everyone wants to do a deal with you, but when you're small, how do you kind of get attention? And so the way that works is small companies, uh, in a partnership, the smaller company is usually looking for customer acquisition and the bigger company is usually looking for a stickier product or or more retention. And so if I'm a really, really big company, like if I'm Salesforce, a hundred billion dollar software company, right? I'm looking for all the other software companies to plug into my marketplace uh, so that when people use Salesforce, they also have all the other tools they need. Um, But if I'm a really small business, I want Salesforce's customers. So I plug into Salesforce in order to get a, a small fraction of the companies that use Salesforce to also use my product too. And so when you're a small startup, the, the way that you really think about it is, is when you pitch a big company is, you know, hey, big company, there's a feature set missing in your product. And by prioritizing partnering with me, I can make your product stickier uh, and your retention better and your lifetime is higher uh, and differentiate you from your competitors. So that's 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 the way that I address that. And then I think, in general, for her spot hero, the way that we really think about it is: is what are kind of the segments uh, or or verticals of, of companies that target similar audience? So in our space, again, we're we're focused on parking, so we're targeting drivers, right? And so who has, who has big audiences of drivers is is what we look at. Well, car companies and and navigation and mobility type apps, and eventually autonomous vehicles, um, and so. Who are the leaders in the in that space? That's kind of the next thing that we look at. So what are the segments? What are the companies? What is the value prop to our mutual, mutual customer? And then you start to pitch and have conversations and figure out where priorities lie. So that's that's really the approach that we take. And as a result, you know, we've we've you know, some of the things that we've announced over the last year or two. Most recently we did a public-private partnership with Waze in the city of Chicago, where one of the challenges that Waze had was their, their GPS works really well when there's cell reception, but if you're driving in a tunnel or an underground road, uh, you don't have cell reception, their GPS doesn't work. So that was their problem. Uh, the problem for us was there were drivers in Chicago trying to park in garages uh, that were underground, and it was really hard for for our customers to find those garages. So we partnered with Waze and introduced them to the city of Chicago, which is you know where, where, where our headquarters is, um, and we built a partnership whereby um, we installed these Waze beacons in all the underground roads in Chicago. And now Waze, Waze has a better product for, for their audience. And our customers are able to find the garage uh, that they want to park at. And the city of Chicago has better tra- you know, better traffic flows uh, and all the benefits of, of having navigation work. So that's one example. Another is, you know, at the beginning of this year, we did a partnership with uh, Google Assistant uh, that was announced at CS. And you know, Google announced that that through Assistant and eventually Android Auto, you'd be able to buy coffee uh, from Starbucks or by parking a spot here by just speaking. By speaking, um, so that's another example of kind of market product product innovation. Um, then we've done distribution deals uh, where we're partnering with folks who plug into our API so that they can offer parking to their audience. And we've done deals with with smaller companies. Where we take their technology and plug it into our app to make our app stickier and better and, and better for our audience. So those are all all different types of examples of of partnerships and ways we've we've approached it recently.
0: Changing gears a little bit, you and I have talked several times in the past about this idea of sort of mental models, and I know that you you know you, you talked a little bit earlier about you know reading and, and ways in which you've kind of tried to level up yourself, and I know this is something that you've you've thought about um, as well in terms of kind of trying to cultivate sort of a different way of thinking or um, uh, changing the way, not just what you think about things, but actually changing the way in which you think and process, you know, kind of problems and and all of that kind of stuff. Tell me a little bit about that and why you think that's important, how you kind of go about doing that, maybe some ways in which it's been helpful for you kind of in the, in the past, just because I think it's a really interesting way of, of sort of navigating the world that a lot of people don't necessarily think about in terms of like changing thinking about how you think, you know what I mean?
1: There's a lot of frameworks that I like to use and I kind of, it evolves over time and depends on the situation, but I'll give maybe one example of a framework for my own personal decision making one for like team decision making and one for like kind of like more company wide context for when I think about how I behave and act and the decisions I make day to day. Uh, One of the questions that I like to ask myself uh, and ask my team and I get asked is, you know, what would the Elon do in five years or what would the Elon in five years do? I should say. Um, And so it really that question really forces yourself to think through to, to to kind of operate at your best or operate at your red line or really think through like if I knew all the things I knew in five years, what would I do differently now? Um, And that question really really pushes yourself. So I ask, I asked that question to myself to a push myself and then B There's a a slight variation on that question which is you know, when I have to decide between like Doing two different things like should I spend the next day in the office knocking out all the stuff? I have to knock out or should I go get on a plane and Go meet that that company or go to that event Uh, Often what I'll ask myself is like what will matter in five years like what will I remember in five years? am I gonna remember being at that event, meeting that person, closing that deal, or I'm am I going to remember like that I was at inbox zero today? Uh, and so that's that's like a, two variations of a question I use on a personal level. In terms of in terms of like team decisions, oftentimes when we're deciding like our strategy or like where should we focus, the framework that we use there is we we try to think in extremes. So, like on one hand, do we shut this project down? On the other hand, do we have every single person in the company? Uh, focus on this project, right? On one hand, uh, do we have, like, a, you know, do we allocate no resources? On the other hand, do we, we know what would it take to hire the best person in the world to go do this. And so try to really, like, push the boundaries and think in extremes. And then usually you end up, like, somewhere in the middle. Um, but by by kind of pushing the boundaries initially, you tend to get comfortable with with some sort of decision in the middle. So that's, that's often how I think about, uh, like strategy and where, where we want to spend our time. And then on a company level, you know, one of my favorite frameworks that I use a lot here is, is actually based on a book called predictable success. There's, there's like two things that happen. One, one, one is like, once you've done this a few times, you start to see like patterns, right. And like the evolution of a startup. Um, and you're like, Oh yeah, it's like always this way. Uh, but people who are newer don't necessarily see that. And the second is there can actually be a lot of discomfort when you're running a startup and, like, you hire someone new and they're like, wait, why didn't you do this yet? Or, like, why isn't this solved or why don't you have a process around this? Predictable success is, is a framework that talks about the evolution of a startup. And I'll, I'll share a little bit and, and talk about how I use it. So, like, when a, imagine, like, an arch, right? Like a rainbow and kind of at the bottom, uh, there's like early survival, and so Sean, you you work a lot with companies who are kind of in that mode of trying to get off the ground and figuring out the product market fit, and like a lot of those companies don't work out, they fail, but some of them some of them succeed, and when they do, then
0: all of mine succeed. Oh yeah, <laughs> all yours, all, there's all there's, yours, exactly. <laughs> well,
1: well, because phase two is 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 called fun, and fun mm-hmm. is when they get funding, right? And so so you're you're in that business, and and you'll fund companies. And when, when they get funded, it's fun, right? They have some money in the bank. They maybe get a salary. They're in the press. Uh, their friends are like, oh, maybe you're not as crazy as we thought. Uh, you hire a few people. You're, you get an award. You know, all, the, all that fun stuff uh, that comes with getting funding or actually, like, getting paid by a customer. In that phase, like, you know, you have a handful of people and everything's great and, and, and life is good. Um, and that's maybe, like, you know, when you're, like, a kid, right? Like, things are easy. But then, uh, kind of, as you work your way up the rainbow, at the top of the rainbow is this thing called predictable success. And that's where like you set a goal and you hit it, and you set a goal and you hit it, and you can think about some of the world-class companies today that, that are probably there. But there's this phase, and then on the other side of the rainbow, there's like, this is hard to do via podcast and audio, but on the other side of the rainbow, there's like all the way down from predictable success through like. Bankruptcy, right? And you could imagine what that looks like. But I don't want I don't want to focus there today because it's not as relevant for startups, but uh and disruption. But but there's this middle stage between fun and predictable success called called white water. And whitewater, imagine like you're rafting, right, and you kinda like hit these hit these rapids or you hit bumps in the road, and like things get a little hard, right? And in life, maybe that's like your teenage years, you're like where you're like struggling with like who you are and what the world looks like. So startups have that too. And in whitewater, you know, you start to get big enough that uh, the people you had really early on, who who were worked really hard and learned fast, but maybe hadn't done it before, aren't necessarily like the right people anymore to lead the team. Sometimes they are, but often they aren't. Uh, the process that you built for like communication when you had two people or five people or ten people doesn't work for when you have a hundred people or two hundred people. Uh, and sometimes the technology that you built when you had a few customers. Uh, doesn't work anymore when you have millions of customers and so whitewater is really about you know getting the right people getting the right process getting the right technology in place so that you can get to predictable success and operate like a world-class business and the reason i like that framework so much is because uh primarily because of a it provides context and like you're like oh yeah this is the way the world is supposed to be And B, it's a really good tool for communicating to your employees and your team about like what the world's supposed to feel like. Because when you start to hit whitewater, everyone's like, wait, it's not as fun as it used to be, or I don't get to spend as much time with the CEO anymore, or I don't know everything that's going on, or why'd you hire this experienced person to be my boss, right? Um, And those are all like real pain points that can kind of kill a culture. Um, but if but if you're really transparent and, edu- and and didactic and communicate with your team about, you know, and you're self aware about where you are on the journey and, and people have that context, then they can really appreciate where we're at and, and the problems that we have to solve. That's number one. And number two is when you have new folks start, you know, oftentimes they'll and I'm sure Sean, you've had this too, they'll be like, Wait, why why isn't this process in place? Why is this a mess? Or why is that a mess? Right? They kind of see under the hood and you can be like that's why I hired you, right? Like, uh, if, if I had optimized my process for communicating with 200 people, when we were two people, I would have never earned the right to be here. I would have never gotten through early survival and fun into predictable into kind of this whitewater phrase, but I've hired you to build the process to get us from whitewater into predictable success. So in any case, uh, I highly recommend that book. Um, and that's, that's one of the frameworks that we use in terms of providing context to the company on, on where we stand as a business.
0: Most of your kind of uh, recent experience at least has kind of been kind of operating in sort of hyper growth mode, but I know kind of in a previous life you were involved at an incubator in Chicago called sandbox. And a lot of the folks that kind of listen to this are in that mode where they're, they're kind of in like a corporate innovation group, let's say, and they're trying to kind of bring new ideas to sort of to the world they're fundamentally kind of startups inside of a bigger organization based on kind of what you've seen either at spot hero or kind of in, in your previous life or any advice that you would give folks to kind of increase their chances of success there.
1: So if you're kind of in this innovation mode, so, so when I spent time in sandbox, you know, very grateful for the time I spent there and I met a lot of really good people and it was really a, a neat place at the time because it was this combination of like on the same floor, there were like, people in venture capital and these entrepreneurs and residents starting businesses and kind of, and then people like running the businesses. So it was this really neat mix and it was a really great opportunity to learn. I think, I think one of the, the lessons or takeaways though is that it's really hard to do when you're first getting a company off the ground, it's really, really hard to do a lot of things well. So you kind of have to like pick one and then it's really, really hard to, you know, in a startup, you have to, you live and die by like speed and momentum and traction uh, and change and testing. And all these things are really the antithesis of a big company where it's like, you want to be slow and careful and not make a mistake and not lose your job and not mess up and not upset your customer, not ruin your reputation. Um, So they're they're really often at odds. And so it's, it's, it's tough, right? And I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I think one of the ways that we do it at Spot Hero is, is we're very intentional about what's like the core business, what's like the big piece of the business we don't want to mess up. And then where are we truly innovating and, and kind of putting a wall between those two is different PLs, different teams, different goals, different evaluation criteria, uh, to make sure that, we're not saying, hey, uh, the ROI is higher on this really big thing, so therefore we're not going to do your small thing. Or we look at things annually for the big thing, and so uh, we're not going to give you feedback until next year on the small thing. right? Like When it comes to speed, evaluation criteria, et cetera, uh, that's where things can really break down. Um, so th- those are a few thoughts on that
0: topic. Obviously at Spot Hero, you sort of elevated your thinking or kind of broadened your thinking. You, you, you know, It was, it was about um, helping people find parking, you've executed on that really well. And I know a lot of your thinking these days is kind of almost about you're having to kind of think into the future and to kind of project. And and as a result of that, I mean, you've started to look into what the future of mobility might look like and um, how do changes in potential transportation impact a business like yours, all of that kind of stuff. As you've been thinking about that, where have you sort of kind of come down, sort of at, at this at the super high level about what what you think the future of of sort of transportation looks like? And then second question, kind of coming out of that is is fundamentally you're you're, you're sort of making a, a guess, and that's uh, on the, on the future, and that can be kind of tough. So how do you make decisions at a strategic level inside of a company where the future is super super fuzzy, I and mean, how do you how do you place bets when? Um, it really can be sort of anybody's guess which way something's going to go.
1: I don't know that I have a great answer I know to, to either of those, but I can talk through kind of my thought process. So, we're a really interesting time for transportation, right? If you think about the in like the tech world at least, the 2000s uh, were definitely about like the web and SaaS and user generated content and social networks, right? And then, like, the last, say, like, this decade has been very much focused on mobile and, you know, while we talk about blockchain and and, and and technologies like that, but let's let's focus on mobile. Uh, I think that there, there's gonna be a pretty massive revolution in you know, the next decade or so uh, around transportation. And you hear it in the news in terms of scooters and autonomous vehicles and smart cities and there's like all these buzzwords. Um, but there's a lot, a lot, a lot that is gonna is gonna change there. Um, and so you know when Spot year started, we this was kind of at the beginning of the like mobile revolution right and we're like wait why do i have to drive downtown and circle around the block and not know where to park and not know how much it's going to cost and have to pay cash and all these like things that felt very um very outdated for for like mobile world right and our business has evolved from like selling parking on a website to a mobile app um but as we think about the future much of Parking will be driven by API, meaning you're going to use your interface, whether that's a you know computer in your car, um, or that's a smart speaker in your car, or that's a, another mobility app that you use to get around, or whether the car parks itself. That's that's kind of like the interface um, that 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 we think you're going to use in terms of parking. So that's that's like at least how we think about the business in terms of like transportation in general. There's just there's a lot of challenges, right? There are challenges around like cities are getting denser. Um, and if you look at any, any data around like, uh, population and urbanization, right? Like cities are gonna be way more dense in the future than they are now. Um, if you look at traffic, even over the last few years, there's a lot of studies that a uh, ride share, I don't, Sean, you and I live, uh, kind of roughly the same region of, of north of the city I and mean, we commute to roughly the same region of the city. But like, I don't know if you've experienced it, but like traffic's gotten way worse over the last few years. Um, and, and that's very much documented or on rideshare, right? And there's so many cars now that are, you know, driving and stopping and driving and stopping and driving and stopping that it can take, you know, commutes are like 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes longer in some cases than they used to be. Um, so that's like another major challenge. And then I think another challenge is like, is that just consumer expectations have changed, right? People are no longer willing to like stand at the bus stop, just like waiting, not knowing when the bus will come, right? Or like. People aren't willing to deal with like a cab not uh, accepting credit card, and like just our expectations around how transportation should be have changed. Um, but because of the infrastructure and government regulation and all sorts of crazy things, it takes longer to change transportation than does the change our change our expectations. Um, so those are a few few thoughts about challenges in terms of the future. I have a few thoughts there. So one is that a lot of the information that consumers or people get it from the media right you have to keep in mind that like the business the media is in and just because something it's something is said in the press uh, doesn't necessarily mean like that's for sure gonna happen right and so like in our space like an example when when people started to talk about autonomous vehicles the headlines were like parking's dead because autonomous vehicles will be here next year it's like a few years ago Um, And we're like, wait, uh, A, autonomous vehicles aren't going to be here next year. It's going to take some time. Uh, And B, are the autonomous vehicles going to be in perpetual motion, driving around the streets 24 hours a day, seven days a week? No, right? That's going to cause more traffic, right? And more congestion. And the biggest kind of uh, cost associated with autonomous vehicles will be them being on the road and the wear and tear. So that doesn't make any sense. And then the headlines became, you know, oh autonomous vehicles. I'll, I'll take my autonomous vehicle to work, and then it'll just drive back to you know my my personal garage in the suburbs, right? So then then traffic gets even worse because then instead of there being one leg back and forth every day, there's two legs back and forth every day, right? And so that was kind of what the press was saying. And if you're actually inside of the industry, right, and you talk to to car companies, and you talk to autonomous vehicle companies, right, like. They're all, they're all highly interested in, in kind of a few things, right? They're highly interested in navigation, right? Like, how am I going to figure out where the car should go? They're interested in, in, like, entertainment, like when someone's in the car, whether they're driving the car or the car's driving itself. How am I going to be entertained during that period of time? And then, like, where is the car going to park and where is it going to get charged and where is it the fleet going to get, you know, cleaned and taken care of? So th- those are some of the interesting things that that that, you know, we think about. And then it's also like going back to like traffic, right? Rideshare, whether it's like Uber Lyft or Via or, or others, uh, has become so popular and so cheap that it's actually not pulling that many people away from driving, it's, but it's pulling a lot of people away from public transit, right? Why take the subway in New York, which is like hot and crowded, if for like an extra dollar you can you can be in a Via, uh, for example. And so, you know, recently Waze Carpool, for example, Uh, announced that they were expanding nationally and kind of their thesis is like that the cost to improve the infrastructure to accommodate all the people and cars uh, to to fix traffic is like insane but what if you just rode to work with your neighbor or someone in your community and we had people share cars when they were going from work to to home and back and forth and so I think you're gonna see a lot more innovation um, There around how do we get smarter about getting around uh, and whether that's on a scooter or in a car or an autonomous vehicle to be determined um, But those are some of the challenges that, that people are thinking about and trying to solve
0: In terms of the autonomous vehicle thing, you mentioned that it's not a year away the inevitability of it there, there was a ton of press around pilots and things like that And It seems like a lot of those have either gotten a lot more modest or they've been sort of shelved entirely um, for folks that aren't following the space, I know this isn't, you know, directly related to kind of what it is that you, you all do, but I know that you, you know, a little bit about it. What are some of the challenges that have to be addressed in order for the autonomous thing to become a legitimate reality from what you understand? I'm
1: going to like speak in, in plain English here, right? There's like a lot of like industry buzzwords, but this is like in plain English, there's like a handful of buckets. So one is like the technology, right? And there's a reason that autonomous vehicles are becoming relevant now because there's a handful of technologies that have emerged that make it possible and so there's still some technology things that have to be solved and companies are doing that at various speeds there's pilots now in certain cities and over the next handful of years that that will be solved right there's another bucket which is around like infrastructure and insurance and regulation and you know what are kind of the rules of rules of the road so an example there in playing it plain English is is in law there's this right there's this concept of like you know like duty of care right and so as a driver or as a company or as as, as as an entity you know you have to do your best right to like keep everyone else safe right uh, but what if you're a machine what if you're a car being driven by an algorithm what, what does duty of care look like like ethically right morally how do we program these algorithms so like if you have to make a trade-off between hitting uh hitting you know person a or person b how do you, how do you make that decision um and so there's there's some things that as a society we have to figure out and and the leaders in the space are trying to think through but that that takes some time so that's a big one and, and i think i mean look like i think i think that'll be solved right i think we'll figure that out but that's that's a pretty big bucket and then there's 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 others right so for example, the average car is on the road for 11 years. And so let's say tomorrow autonomous vehicles are everywhere, right? What are you going to do with your car, right? So if you still have your car, it's 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 going to be cheaper and more convenient for you to still use your own car because you have it. Uh, and if everyone tries to sell their car at the same time, right, then there's going to be an amazing, amazing amount of supply of, of used vehicles and, and low demand. So like the price... Right? Like there, there's some things that are gonna happen there. So there's just there's like a natural evolution that, that's gonna take time. You know, there's all sorts of use cases where, where autonomous vehicles make a ton of sense. Um, and then there's some where, where it doesn't and it's gonna be tough to figure out. Like, so if you're a senior citizen, part of like a retirement community in, uh, in maybe like a suburb of Arizona where there's not like crazy things happening on the road and, and maybe you can't drive, autonomous vehicles are amazing. Um, because you can't get around that easily otherwise and, and the risks are relatively low um, but what happens when it's when there's uh, three feet of snow in chicago um, or here in new york city or you're in these places where where there's like real world challenges that are pretty complex so those are some of the things that, that people think about technology kind of the, the regulation insurance consumer expectations and then just like the reality of the ground of there's differences between a pilot and like doing things really well scale everywhere and that's why that's why it's going to take some time there'll be pilots soon there are pilots now the other example i like to kind of give is like with like mobile right like you buy a new phone roughly like every two years so like and so you can push code like every day every couple of weeks but when it comes to cars just the the, the life cycle of the amount of time i think it's going to take to to proliferate and, and be kind of an every everyday thing is is, is going to take some time
0: what about the, uh, what about the scooter stuff? I mean, you mentioned kind of urbanization and kind of how cities are going to get a lot more dense, bike sharing, scooter sharing. It, it seems reasonable that, that, uh, they're going to at least going kind to of try to kind of make that more common. Do those compete with like ride sharing kind of things or do those, or do they, or, or with, you know, like the Ubers and the lifts of the world, or do they compete with walking or do those fit into how you all are thinking strategically about kind of the future of mobility?
1: You know, on a personal level, right? Like, I in the last week, I've been on a plane, I've been on in a car, I've been on the train, I've used rideshare. Uh, sitting in Chicago, there's no scooters yet, but I've used, I've tried them out in other cities. And so, I think that that like what we're entering is really just like a multimodal world where um, transportation is really not so good right now, right? Like, traffic is bad. Getting from place A to B is is, is bad, right? Like, it's pretty quality of life for people have to get to and from places a lot is is, is is worse than people who can who don't have to do that, right? And so I think having more options of ways to get from place A to place B is really like a good thing for, for the world. In terms of how, you know, how people use it and how it competes, right? There's 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 some, you know, data that's been published by some of like the rideshare companies and some of the scooter companies around that. There's a few really good articles. And it seems like you know, everyone kind of has their niche, right? If you're 50 miles out of the city, uh, you're probably going to want to take like the, the, the commuter training. And if you're, if you know, 10 miles out of the city, you're, you're probably going to want to drive. And if you're, you know, a neighborhood t- or two or three out of downtown, you're probably going uh, to want to do rideshare. If you're going, you know, half a mile to a mile, like scooters are really interesting, right? They're not going to take me 50 miles away, um, but they might give me five more minutes as in the office every day if I have to, uh, if I can get from my office to the train faster. So I think, I think there's a place for all of them. Do they compete with rideshare? I'm not in the rideshare business. I, I assume there's, there's some, which is why, uh, the big rideshare companies have gotten into that business too. Um, does it compete with walking? Yeah, probably. Um, so does that mean people are going to be less healthy because they're, they're walking less often? That, that might be another problem that emerges. I don't know, but in general, I'm a fan of, of, of more options and, making it easier, easier for people to get around cities, uh, where it ultimately lands. I don't know.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. This was really, really helpful for folks that are wanting to maybe learn more about either spot hero or maybe about, um, about yourself. Uh, where, where should I send them? Sure.
1: Uh, actually probably the easiest way is you could email me E L a N at spot dot uh, or on Twitter. It's my last name. M-O-S-B-A-C-H-E-R uh, is my Twitter handle. So those are two good ways to find me. Uh, but Sean, really appreciate you having me on the show. Always great to chat. And uh, thanks for uh, letting me do my first ever uh, podcast here. So great to be here. So you did great. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we'll let the audience be the judge of that. So if, if, if you think I did well, be sure to give Sean a great great uh, star rating on, on various review sites here.
0: <laughs> nice, nice plug. All right, man. Well, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My guest today was Elon Mossbacher from Spot Hero. For show notes and to check out our other podcast episodes, visit digintent.com slash podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, uh, we'd love a review. We actually give away a custom pair of DI sneakers each month to reviewers. You can find out more how to get your pair at digintent.com slash sneakers. That wraps up this episode of The Disruptors, uh, and it's the last one for 2018. So thank you so much for listening this year, and we'll see you back in 2019.